coming up next on the health hustle i always have this like view on private events in chefing and the thing is it's not really for everybody there's a lot of cut to throw a lot of like to the point but also like if people really like your personality you kind of have to be a personality I'm not saying go over the top, it just be personable, have fun, like stories, teach people, like bring that experience up with them. And I've seen like others who are just very strict, straight to the point, get the food done and they're out and it's kind of boring. I mean, I'm not saying like the food is fun. It's just like, hey, like would have loved to know more about you or who you are in the background. It's like, hmm, that's an interesting area, you know? Yeah, I would argue that that would be more, way more important, right? I feel like it'd mm-hmm. be much easier to build a business around somebody that's personable and fun and entertaining than it is that is just like a world star chef. Yeah, and to me, like, if I were to hire a very illustrious chef, like, I would hope to have conversations with that person, like, learn some stories from their background, like, what they've gone through, who they are, like, what their next dreams or ambitions are, what they're working on right now. That's just, like being personable. Hey folks, and welcome to the Health Hustle of Austin, Texas. On this show, we uncover the big ideas from your fellow health and fitness entrepreneurs in the Austin, Texas area about how they built their business and the lessons they learned along the way. I'm your host, Corey Hibben, and on this episode, I had a chance to sit down with Max Menser, who is a keto chef here in Austin, Texas. Some of the things that we get into are when he first discovered entrepreneurship through his dad's trash business, the overlap of food and music, what it's like living with type 1 diabetes, why I compared him to a donut, that was an interesting statement by me in this episode, how he got into the keto world, why he decided to be a private chef, the power of referral marketing, why you should make people feel special, and feel is a very important word, what the hell an aperitif is, a rapid fire question round, his best business advice, and so much more. Without further ado, Let's go. Mac Menser, welcome to the show. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, man. How are you, Corey? Great. We've been trying to schedule this since KetoCon, and I'm glad that we finally are actually live and in person and doing this. So this will be fun. Yeah, man. Uh, it's been a minute, and we've definitely explored our territories and getting to know one another. Yeah, it's been good to get to know each other through multiple events until we finally got on a podcast show and hashed it out. So. <laughs> right. But uh, so... I think where people like to start off with, and I think a great place to start for most people is just really the early stages of entrepreneurship in your life. So before we started recording, you were saying that it is in your family and your father seems to have some experience with just being a business owner in general. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of like where the seed was planted of even the idea of being able to do your own thing? Because I know as myself as a child, I didn't really see it as a kid and it didn't become later in life till I even realized it was an opportunity. Were you able to see that at a younger age? Yeah, you know, I think um, being in that uh, area where my father was uh, establishing his business and kind of taking those moves and, you know, he was gone a lot, but still made time for his family. I was able to see that kind of a generational thing for it. And it's interesting because, you know, I was pretty young and I was able to navigate that territory as I got older with my dad and ask questions pertaining maybe to certain ideas, topics, conversations, like how would you handle a certain situation with this what's okay, what's not, some legality stuff like contracts. But I think primarily like when I was like probably two or three was when he was pretty much getting into his own business first. Do you remember what the first business was? Yeah, so he launched his trash company called um, Team Green. And uh, he said it was a shower thought, which I was kind of find really funny is like, hey, some of the best ideas come up while you're in the shower with a beer, right? Yeah. That's how it happened. I have a buddy that ha- he literally just bought this like waterproof notepad that he has in his shower, purely for shower <laughs> thoughts. Because like, yeah, in that, in that stage, it happens when I walk a lot as well, is like just the act of doing the mindless activities, creative ideas show up. Yeah. So was this like a save the planet trash service or like, I don't understand, like what was it exactly? You know, his logo actually was the planet Earth. And he definitely capitalized a little bit on that green and blue color, you know, definitely had green trucks for trash company, as you can kind of tell nowadays, like that's what a lot of people use. So I feel like he was on the right path for finding out like what would work best for getting more clients. But, you know, I did hear a couple of stories like later in my life where I heard he was going door to door where we were in the neighborhood and trying to get people to sign up for his trash business. And he would get them. So he'd like, 
do old school methods. Door knocking, baby. Door knocking, yeah. And sales pitch him. And I think the fact that like he had one truck to start with is kind of cool. Mm. And he adventured into multiple trucks, multiple employees, and then obviously going into his next prolific business partnership. Have you talked to him about it? Like, is he glad that he did it? Would he have done something different? Like, what did you learn from it? Oh, man. Uh, so I've briefly touched on it. And some of the stuff that I've picked up off of it is kind of like uh, he primarily did it to support the family. You know, I think he was kind of in that mindset of what am I going to do for my business? How am I going to make money? I think I don't know the whole background because he used to work for my grandfather, his dad, with his uh, car company and sell cars. That was kind of like the big thing first for him. And I think that set money-wise up pretty much well for him to go into this direction. But I knew like from the start that that wasn't what he wanted to do is sell cars or work for somebody else. He wanted to own his own business. What an interesting first choice of business, I would say. It reminds me of, uh, there's a book called The Millionaire Next Door. I don't know if you're familiar with this book at all. But it basically just talks about like, there's so many millionaires out there of people that you would never guess. And they're always like, the most classic of businesses, the things that aren't sexy, yeah. but they're things that people need and are will always spend money for, like trash or dirt or mm-hmm. housing or food or like the classic things that we need in everyday life that will never go away. Yep. That always turns into like million dollar businesses. And like it's it always brings up the debate of like, do you chase money or do you chase passion? And like what do you do? And it's like I don't know. It's, it's always good to hear those like contrarian stories about like, I started a car washing service and now I'm a millionaire. Like it's cool to like, just be successful in business, I think is the fun part. And it's cool to see that you saw that at an early age. Yeah. You know, and a, a lot of these things that I get to see or even experience myself nowadays in this age is with my business, I get to maybe have some conversations with my father too and see like what that dynamic is like between having employees, hiring people, or even just bringing a, helping hand on to do some extra stuff. So let's fast forward a little bit in this journey then. So you saw this in your family with your father moving forward. So did you go on to pursue your own passions and interests in terms of like wanting to start your own thing? Or did you go the classic route of like going to school, get a job and work the nine to five? I'm pretty positive that I did the former of that for sure. And, you know, I went to college. Uh, I graduated from community college almost, I say, because I was like two credits away from uh, actually getting my associates. And uh, I was actually studying music at the time. So that was a hobby, uh, well, professional career I actually had. And that was my first big step into the door for the professional world. I toured nationally as a heavy metal drummer and jazz drummer. I recorded, taught, you name it. I I had a foot in the door on it. So you never wanted to do the nine nine to five thing. You always wanted to kind of explore your own interests. Yeah. I always thought, you know, I could never do desk work, even though I do a lot of it today, (laughs) (laughs) creating menus and all that stuff. But that's how you get the business to be able to go out and operate for creativity, you know? But my thing is just like, I would never want to sit down and that be the thing nine to five, couldn't do it. I want to make my own schedule. I want to be able to do the things that I like. I want to flourish in the things that I have a passion for. It's so interesting that you were into music and now into food. Do you find that there's a lot of overlap in that? I feel like that's a pretty Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you a little intel on some of the background of that. So I actually, the reason why I chose culinary after music was I was about 22 years old and I had a a gig one night where I slipped on some icy steps while packing up and scraped my hand on a rusty iron fence and I got tetanus and I damn near walked it off because the next morning I was stiff, swollen and a lot of pain all through my shoulders and arms and hands and like could barely move them. Right. It was like minimal movement. I had no idea what it was. I just popped some pain pills because I was a young kid thinking nothing of it. <laughs> and you know, I go to this new doctor that I get, they give me the vaccine for tetanus and uh, it cures it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, like really? And uh, they're like, yeah, I think you have it. And I was like, no way. Well, you know, my right hand still has a little issue, which was kind of holding me back from progressing in music because, you know, drumming, it uses a lot of fingers. So I had to make the executive decision. Do I want to continue with this and have a struggling life with this or go another route? And I decided to choose culinary because my parents came to me and they were like, 
Max, we'll pay you to go finish your music degree at Denver University. And at first I was like, oh, cool. Oh, wait, Denver University, $60,000 a semester? Hell no. Damn. I was like, that's the most, like, I'd be in debt for the rest of my life, you know, if I went for a music degree, Mm -hmm. unless you made it big. And I was like, hey, here's another opportunity that I think I would do really well in. And I jumped ship on music and went straight into the culinary world. What did you learn from that experience from getting tetanus and then just like getting an injection and then being like good to go from that? Like, I don't feel like a lot of people have had that experience. Was it pretty painful? Like, what did you learn from that? Yeah. So I would say the first three days, well, honestly, the first day was the worst. And I was taking the pain pills trying to figure out what was going on. But man, I w- that was some in, like just uninviting pain that I did not want. And I had no idea. And I didn't really think too much of it. It was something very small, like literally just broke skin. There was no blood, nothing. And I still got it. So it's kind of crazy to think like how easily you're able to get something like that, but how quickly you need to address it. That was the uh, same as my buddy. I remember in college, we were partying one night and he kept talking about how his arm hurt really bad. And it had like this like red streaks going up and down his arm. And we're like, ah, no, you're fine. Just have another beer. And we just like kept partying. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, woke up the next morning and like it started to the point where it was like throbbing, right? And it had just started that night. And he's like, man, I really think I should go in for this thing. And long story short, we ended up going, taking him to the hospital. We go in. Turns out he had a staph infection. And they were basically, I'm sure similar to you, saying like, if you don't get this addressed like today, you're going to lose your arm. Yeah. Like it's like an immediate issue. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, the way I look at this kind of stuff is, you know, us being guys, we think we're kind of invincible. Oh yeah. Especially in college. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you're younger, like yeah, you're just 20s. like, I'm invincible. I can do anything and nothing's going to hurt me. And that's far from the truth. So are you still into the music thing now then? You know, not so much. I haven't played in a very long time, but the reason being I live in an apartment. You can't just have a drum set, you know, I could rent a studio. Yeah. Right. You could rent a studio and go out and get lessons or something. But at some point I want a house where I can have a set and play on any occasion I need. Do you have any remorse about not being able to play music anymore? Is that something you wish you would be able to still do? Yeah. I wouldn't say it's like uh, remorse. I would say more just like, man, and this is kind of funny. Like it was a very quick and immediate stop for me to just can like not play anymore. I kind of, see that now through like being diagnosed with ADHD recently. Uh, but that was really interesting because I was able to like, look at, it, I was like, why did I stop doing this? And I mean, I hadn't touched a set in years and I was just like, man, this is so weird. Like it was such a big part of my life. Like I wanted to continue learning and doing this or have it at least be a hobby of mine, which I would say it still is. I still go to music shows. I still go to concerts. I still see live music, jazz shows, you know, even when heavy metal bands that I like, I go out and I do it, you know? So are you able just to like cut off from that? Do you feel like that's because of ADHD that you were able to just like cut the ties on that and move on to the next thing? Yes and no. I think I thought when I was first coming out here, I was going to be able to play some music because that was the draw. It was like, hey. Where are you from originally? Uh, Colorado. Okay. Yeah. I grew up in Colorado Springs actually. And so I was like, hey, I want to do m- music and food. And, you know, Austin being the food scene it was and the music scene it mm-hmm. is, I was, that was a really big pull for me. That's a good reason to come here, live music. But you yep. never actually pursued that and never got into that? No, I think, you know, creative passions, I think you really have to either put focus into one or the other at one point. Mm. And so, you know, you can have multiple outlets for that. But it's like, what's one that's taking you places? Should you focus on that? Should you light the fire under that? Or should you just kind of tip dip your toes into the other ones you know well i don't know what you're like behind a drum set but i do know what you're like behind a kitchen because i've experienced some of that and we're all grateful for it because we were actually just at a friend's giving and you brought a smoked turkey that was out of this world but yeah so let's get into that a little bit so okay obviously you've pursued this passion into keto specifically was kind of the starting point from a lot of this from type 1 diabetic correct yeah so um to give you kind of a poll and a background of why i wanted to do culinary is one i had type 1 diabetes uh the keto stuff came a little bit later down the road but i was also into fitness i was trying every diet possible how did you pause how did you find out that you had type 1 diabetes well um let's talk about that too because it's interesting i was 14 months old when i was diagnosed not a lot of type ones can really say they were diagnosed at that age 
Usually it happens a little bit later, you know, six, seven, even into adulthood sometimes. The thing that I thought which may be the cause of it was uh, the enterovirus. So what that is, is a, a virus that's contracted by the mother and carried by the mother and attacks the fetus during the birthing process and you get type 1 diabetes. I don't know if there's a test out there for that. Uh, I'm sure there is at some point, but it makes me kind of think because, you know, during the time between that and my diagnosis when I was born, a lot of my family members were talking about how I smelled sweet via the pee and all that stuff and having a lot of sugar in my system. And that's how I was diagnosed, man. You smell sweet. Yeah. Like a donut. Yeah. Le- less baked or yeasty, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. That was the first thing I thought of. Probably because <laughs> we were just talking about the salty here in Austin. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Okay. So then to go back to that original question then. So keto, how did you get into that realm then? Yeah. So as I progressed into my culinary career, I learned a lot of things. And I was also exploring different styles of dieting and nutrition. At one point, I was doing intermittent fasting, carb cycling, and I was 8% body fat. I looked shredded to the bone, felt terrible on the inside, though. (laughs) And so I kind of did some investigation myself. I was like, why do I feel like shit all the time? One of the reasons being is my hormones were completely unbalanced. Then I found out, actually, that I was having a lot of allergy issues, too. One of them being I was deathly allergic to yeast, which is kind of wild. You know, it's everywhere. And I'm sorry for calling you a donut. That's probably (laughs) insulting now that I think if it's cake, I got it. (laughs) Um, Okay. But I uh, decided that given the fact that a lot of stuff that has yeast in it is, you know, got carbs, bread, food, all that stuff. I was like, let's just negate all that stuff and go the keto route. And I was a little hesitant, nervous, obviously, with working with the keto area because it was focused on ketones and diabetics. Like with ketones, there's issues. But I found, obviously, when I jumped in headfirst, as much knowledge and stuff that I knew until I actually experienced it, I wouldn't understand it. Mm. So I jumped in and just started going ham on it and had a great uh, mentor on it as well when I first started the diet and the exercise protocols and all that stuff. But what I found, you know, nutritional ketosis is way different than, say, DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis, which you could die from. Damn, man. Yeah, I, uh, I did the keto thing for a short stint as well and can definitely relate to just the feeling you get behind it and energy levels and all that stuff. And like I noticed that I had more sustainable energy, but like when it came to working out and exercise, my energy was just completely trash because like I didn't have the carbohydrates to do explosive movements yeah, yeah. essentially. But a lifestyle thing, I totally understand how people could get into it. Do you know Logan Sneed, by the way? I do, yes. Yeah, he was on the show as well, and obviously he was really big and like when keto was just getting popular, and yep. he was totally into it for health reasons, and like he had that's a whole... basically when I started the whole process too. When did that shift from? Because I know you've worked for a number of big name chef companies and done the chef thing, and like been really in some pre- pretty prestigious restaurants. When did that shift happen for you, or why? I guess is the better question. Why did you decide? to start doing your own thing and start doing private catering as opposed to working for a restaurant or even starting a restaurant for that matter. There's a lot of overhead when it comes to owning a restaurant. And you have to think about the time and dedication that you have to put forth to making that thing survive. Most restaurants nowadays won't even survive past a year unless you have a solid backup plan and everything that you need to do for it and investors and all this other stuff. I think it's just way too much nonsense when you could be making a lot more money running your own business as a private chef. What kind of launched me into that though was like I was at that point where I needed to make a decision. I was turning 30 and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I was like, I'm making $36,000 a year on salary at most working in high end restaurants. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I paycheck to paycheck kind of situation. And I was like, I'm 30 years old. I was like, no chick's going to want to date me. <laughs> hey, man. No a one's good motivator. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't even support myself more often than not. And I was like, what am I going to do? And after like being a chef at Red Ash for three and a half years, obviously they canned everybody at the beginning of COVID. It kind of freed me up, obviously, with some of that unemployment money and being able to kind of go and explore myself personally. And I was like, what would I do that could make me money that I know I would be really good at? And the keto was a big part of me starting my own business. And in January of 2021, I had like four clients just land in my lap and I launched my business in that time too. How did they land in your lap? Like how did you get a, come across these clients? Word of mouth. 
Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I guess like my website was one of the only websites at the time that came up as like private keto chef maybe. So you created a website that said like private keto chef in Austin, Texas, and somebody was Googling it and they found you. Yeah. I was one of the first people to come up for that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think my credits in the back pocket of being a chef and where I've worked in the past have definitely led me to a fruitful life. (laughs) Was that intentional creating that website or like, where was your headspace at when you made this thing? Was it more or less just like a business card and it just got lucky or like, how did that happen? It was more often than not kind of in this situation of, Hey, social media was big. I was popping off during this time. I needed a place where I could blog and put my recipes. Now I don't even blog. I don't even have a website. I don't want to write a recipe on a web page anymore. Uh, maybe later down the road. Yeah. But so you were writing keto recipes? Yeah. Oh. And I, I mean, I was making pretty good headway with it too. One thing that I thought was kind of cool was this is when the algorithm wasn't such a big thing. Sure. And it was like chronological order. Sure. You can kind of go back in my profile. You see where like, oh, I got another hundred likes on top of another and on another and on another. It kept growing, growing, growing. And then an algorithm hits and I get absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's wow. funny to kind of see that. And that's like when they ventured outside of the chronological order. I think after that, though, it kind of made me think about where I was going to get money or how I was going to do things because it's like I can't rely on social media. There are areas that you can, you know, obviously nowadays there's a lot more fruitful things that you can go into or explore. Where I found the best success was just my word of mouth stuff. Do you grow an email list as well? Or is it purely just like contacts in your phone? Contacts in my phone. Okay. Yeah. You know, I do have a way to collect that when you go in and you sign up for, say, a private event or something or a consultation there's an email format that gets in there. Yeah, I think it's great. I think you're, I was actually just talking to Dr. Scott about this a moment ago on the last episode about like, just like really having that relationship. And it, it could be emails, it could be text messages, it could be phone numbers, like texts can be great. Sometimes it can get annoying, but like just having that real one-on-one connection. I know we talked about that the other day as well is like not being 100% dependent on your social media platform. Yeah. Great for attention, but not for maintaining those relationships, which obviously you're doing probably via text and referrals. I'd also have to imagine, which correct me if I'm wrong, that the clientele that you're working with is probably primarily looking for referrals. I mean, if you're looking for somebody for a private, I'm assuming high quality type event or chef, like you're not going on Dr. Google and like just finding the random person. Thumbtack, right? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Fiverr, right? Yeah, or like yeah. whatever your thing is. It's yeah, like, no. So what I've actually found is the clients that I definitely work for and with, they often refer me out because if it is such a good product that you have to give somebody and they like you, they're going to start talking about you. And that's a reason why, yes, my social media blew up was people were talking about me and I was making a statement in this crowd and why I blew up in keto, same kind of thing is I, my, my background on that was uh, everyone was bitching about it being a like restrictive diet. And I was like, fuck that. I was like, I'm a chef. I'm going to bring all these like different unique fats to the table. And I'm just going to bring things to people that taste good. Because I knew like, you know, everyone knows when you find a recipe online, that's something like that. There's maybe not 100% honesty in it. You know, the amount of ingredients, what the nutrition information is, or the size of it even. I've seen photos that are manipulated and you get a donut that's the size of your thumbnail. I'm like, dude. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's 100 calories. There's one carb. And I'm like, uh, yeah, but it's also, you know, cookie crisp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, uh, I remember when I was doing it and I got into like the keto pizzas. Yeah. So the crust was basically like cheese is yeah. essentially what it was fathead so, dough oh my gosh it was the greatest thing of all time yeah <laughs> i love that stuff so when you first started your own private chef business was it just you were you just doing it solo or how did that yeah work? so the way that this looked when i started it was solely only me and i didn't even have an llc started i had no idea about like what i wanted to do i just knew i wanted to own a business doing private chef things so you just like showed up with your gear and you're like all right let's do this yeah and like this is funny like during COVID, I kind of actually launched a private like meal prep business. And it was during the time we were like, you know, refraining from getting too many groceries and, you know, there's 10 people going in a store. And I was like, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to take a bite because no one wants a stranger inside of their house cooking for them during COVID, during quarantine. And so I pulled it back, waited for a minute and then just kind of get my bearings of like how I would operate and move and what I need. And then like in January, it just dropped and I was like, oh shit, like I need to take this seriously. I need to protect myself, my clients, all this stuff. And I think 
one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs today that got into their business, like maybe they didn't have a, a mindset of like, I'm going to own a business. They probably just jumped headfirst into it and started mm-hmm. doing it. And then they figured out the other things that they needed. It's kind of how I went. Yeah. I, I think the expression is often said is like, it's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute and then you just build the plane on the way down. Yeah. Is a lot of what it feels like. When did you feel like you started gaining traction or having a hold of like what you were actually doing? Cause I'm sure the early stages of you just like showing at the home, like how did you even start to figure out what meals you were going to cook or like, how did that all look? Right? Like how did you start to piece this together of something that you thought could be sustainable? Yeah. So I think some of those kind of interesting is obviously from my background, the way I looked at my chef experiences were, I know how I can manipulate say keto meals or recipes, but that were normal food. So normal food, I looked at from a chef perspective and I was like, oh, they use a lot of sugar in this. Just replace that with sweetener at this percentage level. Or, you know, for say a flour, how would you take that out and replace that with? That's a little harder. That's one you might need to test some R&D out with. But almond flour, coconut flour, you know, they all have an interplay on some of this stuff. You know, I made a coconut flour pancake that's kind of similar to like the cream cheese pancake. Mm-hmm that feels and tastes like a real thick pancake. What was the feedback that you were getting from people when you first started doing your private chef thing at events? I knew I still had to learn because meal prep to me, it's like, man, I got to do all the nutrition facts too. Like, whew. And trust me, my portions, I probably didn't measure in ounces or grams and make sure that I was doing that because that's way too much time out of my hands. Right. But I, I learned that, you know, having a good sense of level of professionalism, if something were to happen or they didn't like something, how to like kind of learn the ropes of making sure they feel seen and heard and respectful and correcting something that might be wrong. You know, I had such a detail oriented mind when I was first starting that I had templates for the meals and the menus uh, specifically for each client. I had knowledge of the database of everything that they liked or disliked. They always followed up with say like uh, each week a review. So like, you know, how was the salt levels? You know, was it too spicy? What did you like? What didn't you like, et cetera, just to get as much feedback as I possibly could. And then I would just start running with it because a lot of people too, they have allergies, which you have to, kind of rethink a lot of stuff in this community and that was tough like I would research things and find that some of the items that I had in there all contained like terrible oils which is no real hard thing to change or you know if you wanted to say I think one of the hardest thing I love using Asian condiments and yes, you can make some of that stuff yourself but a lot of times it's made with like gluten mm-hmm. so you're like mm you know, brown rice is in a lot of that stuff. I know the other buzzword too is MSG. I just went down that <laughs> rabbit hole as well. It's funny because like based on what I did in my short stint of research is there's actually no research to basically say MSG actually has any negative effects. It was literally like one guy that had like some stomach issues after an Asian meal once and then he just blamed yeah. MSG and then the whole world turned on it. It was yeah. basically the story that I heard. Yeah, so I... I put this into perspective for a lot of this stuff is like, yeah, there might be some evidence that has proven to be true. However, if you really look at like their testing and how they're studying these things, they're doing such a small little niche of study groups that it doesn't really elicit to the fact that, Hey, the people in Asian uh, cultures have MSG all the time. So they're very used to it. Or if they're going to be like focusing on a specific area, you know, and they've picked like the people who consume the most MSG, like, yeah, you're probably going to find something. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, in everyday American culture, maybe the only time that you get the MSG is in Asian food. And, you know, if you're not somebody who's used to eating that stuff, there's going to have some things that come up, you know, headaches as one of them. Well, cool, man. So I would, I'm super curious as to, as a private chef business owner, how much of your job is actually the chef and how much of your job is an entertainer? So the entertaining portion actually only comes when you're doing service. Hmm. And so for say like the allotted four hours that a dinner might take, you're there providing the service. You know, I show up, I, for like the first hours, like getting set up, unloaded, making sure things are hot and ready to go at that time of the start of the event. Maybe two hours is what the event takes. And then the last hour is like cleanup stuff. However, like in that same time frame, you know, talk with your guests, meet them, be professional, you know, 
um, talk to him about some of the dishes. I think what's really cool is I get to provide an experience unlike one, none other. And one being is I don't just like put the food down in front of your face and say, Hey, here's like, Oh, this is tiramisu. I go through the whole process of like what we do, the background on it, you know, for tiramisu, I love making that for my guests, but you know, where does this come from? Like, how did I learn to make it? It's well, I went to red ash. I helped open a restaurant and we made tiramisu all the time. Mm. And so I get to learn or explore that territory, teach them a little bit of like the intricacies of food or, um, my personal experience with it. Yeah. I think, uh, I would have a lot of fun with the showmanship side of things. Like I have yeah. no interest in pursuing like actually how to make any of these meals or anything like you're doing. Yeah. But I feel like if I like join forces with you, I would love to just be the person that brings that out and has some ridiculous script about how like this was made with some orchard in some crazy land and how we stirred and masseused it and massaged it to your delight <laughs> and how you're going to enjoy this meal and this evening. I don't know. I don't know what it'd be, but like, masseused I think I would, it, huh? I'm yeah. going to use that. <laughs> I don't even know if you massage urchins or I don't even have no idea. But, uh, but I, I just, that's, that was like one of the main things I wanted to ask you before coming on here is like how much of your job is actually like, cause it's a service-based business, right? And whenever I think about a service-based business, so much of your experience is, this the customer service right yeah and like how much that also shows up into private events yeah i also think like i always have this like view on private events in chefing and the thing is it's not really for everybody there's a lot of cut throw a lot of like to the point but also like if people really like your personality you kind of have to be a personality and i'm not saying go over the top but just be personable have fun like stories teach people like bring that experience up with them. And I've seen like others who are just very strict, straight to the point, get the food done and they're out and it's kind of boring. I mean, I'm not saying like the food is fun. It's just like, Hey, like would have loved to know more about you or who you are in the background. It's like, Hmm, that's an interesting area, you know? Yeah. I would argue that that's would be more, way more important, right? I feel like it'd mm -hmm. be much easier to build a business around somebody that's personable and fun and entertaining than it is that is just like a world star chef. Yeah. And to me, like if I were to hire a very illustrious chef, like I would hope to have conversations with that person, like learn some stories from their background, like what they've gone through, who they are, like what their next dreams or ambitions are, what they're working on right now. That's just like being personable. Right. And I want that to sink through for anybody listening to the show right now. It's just like how important that piece of it is, regardless of what you're doing. Cause like at the end of the day is like, even for me, for somebody who does marketing is like, I also understand that literally marketing at its very core root level is relationship building. Yeah. Right. Whether you're running ads or you're creating content or you're doing cold outreach or whatever it is, the purpose and the goal behind every single one of those scenarios is being personal, building relationships and having a connection with somebody. Yep. That's the goal of all of it. But it's the exact same thing for a service business as well Is like, if you can build a personal relationship, you build a lifelong customer, which mm -hmm. I'm sure is exactly what you're doing is like, if you can be relatable with these people, they will probably continue to hire you for the rest of their events for hopefully the rest of their life. Yeah. The thing too, I always try to say to people is don't necessarily just be like, Oh, Hey, here's my business card. Please call me. You know, I, I always think that's a little dry. Totally, super dry. Yeah, and it's a little like, I'm just here for business kind of thing. Unless that card also has a piece of chocolate on it or something, and they're like, okay, all right, I'm into this. Yeah, I put things in your mouth, you know, make things taste good. <laughs> Is this the bada thing? <laughs> I love that. But yeah, my, my biggest thing is when you're out networking, you're trying to get clients and stuff is like, yes, have a business card, have, you know, a tech business card as well. And don't just hand it to them, like generate some conversation and get personable about their business as well as tell some stories about yours and vice versa. And because that person that you're talking to and you're creating this dynamic relationship, when you leave, you can hand them that card and they'll be like, Hey, this person made me feel this certain way. And that leaves an imprint on them. And then I always tell people is like beyond you just passing someone their business card, make sure you get their contact details. I don't care what it is. It should always be their email and their phone number, their name, get it in your book and then follow up with them in like a two, three days. And that way you get business coming. And now it's hard because you have to manage that and go out all the time and do it. But 
that's just chasing it until you kind of get that where referrals just come to you. You hit a word I want to repeat, feel, get them to feel, because I think it's so important for us to remember. I try to slam this into my own brain on a daily basis is that people don't remember what you say all the time, but they certainly remember how you make them feel. And if you can mm -hmm. make them feel special or unique or create a unique experience, I'll give a perfect example. I'm sure you've probably been there. You're probably familiar with them. Uchi and Uchiko. Yeah. So they do a phenomenal job here in Austin. It's a sushi restaurant if you don't know what it is, but they do a wonderful job of making you feel special. Yeah. And I remember it. And like they do little things and I know it's purely marketing ploy and I know they purely do with everybody. They're like, here's this like extra fish dish or whatever it is for you. Fine people. Like here's a dessert after your meal, even though you didn't even ask or order for one. Like little things like that to make you feel special. Yeah. I would argue is the biggest thing to the success of their service oh yeah one thing i'm always doing especially in my own personal menu creation for the higher end clients who want those like 250 to 500 meals you better believe that you're going to be getting aperitifs at the start while A you're what? drinking champagne i don't know what that is aperitifs just the fancy word for an appetizer but really they're just like past apps mm. so small one to two biters that's uh, exactly what uchiko did okay yeah, yeah. They're, they're very tasty and fun unique beautiful you know you can just put one on a plate and you're like damn that's smart man do you remember or do you have an example of like you could go either direction with this the best or funnest or the worst experience you've had at a dinner party that you've hosted yeah um i don't know if i should share but uh there's been some that were my own personal own doing which is fine you know you learn from some experiences yeah, and you grow we all make mistakes i think like one of the most difficult things I had to come to realization was I was slow as fuck. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that I wasn't moving and operating efficiently. It was more like the components in my food were like way too much for me solely doing it. So it took a minute and I had to kind of come to terms with maybe uh, having things ready like way before, like how far could I take this? Could I portion these things out more? Could I cook them more efficiently? and just really looking into how I could improve. Yeah, man, it's building the plan on the way down. I'm sure you're still figuring that stuff out. Oh yeah. Have you ever had a scenario where somebody just like slipped a bunch of money into your pocket while you're out like delivering food or anything like that? Oh yeah, uh, the, the aprons, they have pockets, people slip in my apron all the time. God, that's awesome. Yeah. You're kind of like a stripper, you're like a food stripper. It, it's legitimately like that. Yeah, just money falling out of your apron. <laughs> Yeah. Ooh, let me pick this up and then you're like naked under yeah. the apron. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I haven't had a gig like that yet, but I'm sure a bachelorette party or something would happen to you. Oh, see, maybe that could be your new shtick. Like instead of the keto thing, maybe you're like bachelor bachelorette parties and yeah. make it real funky. <laughs> man, I could only imagine. Well, that's cool, man. So let's continue this journey a little bit. So you've been doing this personal chef thing for now, what, a couple years now? Two yeah, years? so I started in 2021 of January. Okay. So about almost two years now, that was when I started the meal prep process. And I probably did that for about a year. And then come 2022 around February is when I launched all of the private events and dinners. And I've only really been doing that for nine months now or so. And how have things been going and where do you kind of see things moving forward with this or where would you like things to go? It was actually really cool. So I've been pretty successful with it. And um, it's interesting to see like the dynamic and the culture of everything because one, I had no idea what to expect when I was going into the events. One thing I did have in mind is I was able to see and view other people's businesses and see what they were doing, what kind of style of food. And what I always saw was like, no one was out there just like throwing cool shit out there. And I w was like, okay, like I want to go hard as soon as I start. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have aperitifs, McNardies, like all these super like chef terms and create lavish food that's fun, creative and stuff you've never seen before. And there's a couple of techniques I do use that you would never know about unless talk to. And it creates a really interesting dynamic because it got me the attention of multiple other businesses in that realm. Hmm. And so, you know, I don't mind name dropping a couple of them, but Gather and Forge hired me on. And so like now I'm one of their uh, chefs too. And I am an independent contractor with them doing things with that. The Austin Artisan also is in this realm of this and they bring me on if I need to uh, get a little 
extra thing under my belt or something for the month or if I can help them out at certain points because they have helped me, I help back. Then the other one is Eversole Culinary or Manila Rice. He's a good friend of mine, actually. We have a, a long history where we worked our first jobs together and we had no idea. My first culinary job was in Colorado Springs at the Broadmoor, and he was doing his internship there and studying with them. And I saw him briefly throughout the whole thing, but we never knew of one another. And then come to find out he's out here doing this, and we meet up, and we're like, you worked at the Broadmoor? And he's like, yeah, man. And it's like, oh, remember this, sharing stories? He's helped me out a ton. He got me in the door a lot of things, uh, so I give him a lot of props for that too. That's awesome, man. Do you think you'll continue to do the keto thing, or like, what would you be your ideal scenario moving forward with this private chef business? I definitely do keto. I still do it as my own personal diet, and I'm at that point in my career where I'm able to see, like, hey, oh, this dessert I just made—that's a normal dessert. I can easily make keto. One thing that I always felt like a lot of people lacked was a good uh, sweetener that could caramelize without getting brittle or gritty. And that's going to be allulose, obviously. But uh, beyond that, yeah, I love the fact that if somebody needs that to be requested at a, like a dinner or something, I can accommodate that. Mm. And then also I can be like, oh, yeah, like here's my and like handle. Like this is what I do. And then surprise them with something lavish and fun and great. And do you kind of just make it up as you go? Or do you have like specific like this is the plan for the meal that we're offering at this event more often than not i gather all of the information from the client primarily just a template of stuff and so i'll get like what their needs are you know allergies dietaries you know any kind of foods they like or dislike and then i'll create a menu for them based upon their preferences and what that does is gives me a little bit of leverage to still control the menu and be able to push out really fun foods and still be able to meet that client's needs well, if you're if you need a guinea pig and you make anything with peanut butter, <laughs> that's gonna be my one request. I could eat that all day, every day. I got a round of rapid fire questions for you. Oh, okay, let's do this. So just whatever first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Best business advice. Network. Best marketing advice. Use the free things first. Favorite part about entrepreneurship. Creating your own schedule. Love that. When are you the most productive? Mid afternoon. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard that one. I would say nine times out of 10, it's morning. Tell me one secret about you or something just most people don't know about you. Can I do two? Yeah. Okay, uh, heavy metal drummer, the tour nationally, professionally, and I just got diagnosed with ADHD in February. <laughs> How do you feel about that? It's weird, bro. That's a whole topic. Like, my uh, diagnosis was kind of traumatic, per se, but... Uh, like, when you heard that, that you had it? like. Well, words, how it kind of came to fruition where I was like, hey, like, how does this work or what's going on? Think of, um, you know how people have a uh, midlife crisis? Mm -hmm. It was like that, but like tenfold because now I had an explanation as to why I was the way I was, why I felt the way that I did or how I acted and stuff. But it was so much like, wow, this is a lot to really take in and be like, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. And then being like, how do I fix this or correct it or live with it? That's the hard part. Like when you were filling out like a questionnaire and you're like, wow, I check all these boxes. This is for sure me. Yeah. So they have a couple of interesting sections of when you're getting diagnosed, right? So the DSM-5 mm -hmm. and, you know, that includes a multitude of different neurological deficiencies. It's not just ADHD or depression. Sure. It's a lot. And they kind of show you like what you're thinking or how you're feeling. And I, I don't necessarily base off of this as like, this could be a thing. Cause at the time that I got my diagnosis, I was going through a little bit of depression and was ruminating a lot and having negative thoughts. And it wasn't anything to be worried about, but it was just like, damn, I'm doing this a lot. But I noticed that like they, so I was hundred percent combined ADHD. So there's hyperactivity, one form of ADHD, which is the one you see people bouncing off the walls. Mm -hmm. And then there's inactive as well, which is kind of like the quiet one that you mostly see in women, but uh, is a lot with men too. Then you have one where you just kind of list all of them, which is me combined. And so I was 100% that. Then 
and it's a scale of like zero to a hundred too, then, uh, they saw my depression was at like a 98 out of a hundred. <laughs> I, like, I was like, great. Like I can pull myself out of that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, just got to get past this like breakup that I was going through. And then the other one that I thought, which was kind of interesting was I'm trying to think of what it was, but it wasn't OCD, but it was like, uh, bipolar. Yeah. It was bipolar. So they had a, like the bipolar questions I could kind of see very apparent, but it wasn't apparent with me that I was doing those things. It was more like, Oh, like that's a bipolar question. And I was like, that's not me. And I didn't resonate with it, but it kind of made me think a little bit and be like, do I have that or not? And so how old are you? 32. Wow, man. Yeah. And you had no idea your whole life that this was going on. No. You never realized you were a little different than everybody else. Uh, I mean, I, I knew that mo- that part. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I may be a little emotional, you know. I'm still an emotional man, but I have more control over it now. How have you changed since finding that out about yourself? Oh, man. It's, it's wild. So talking about that stuff uh, is... Like, I feel like I hyper-focus on it and maybe speak way too much about ADHD. And I see that my therapist tells me all the time, stop fucking talking about it. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. No, you're good. (laughs) But um, the stuff that I've done is, you know, I definitely hyper-focused for the first two months trying to find out as much information as I possibly could on this so that I could understand myself a little bit more. And I don't think that's weird at all, though, for the record, because like... Anyone in that scenario, if you find out something, regardless of what it is, if it's a disease or an illness or a condi- whatever, is like you want to know everything about it because like that affects your life. So that's not weird at all for the record, but go on. Yeah. And I mean, even I see like TikToks or, you know, posts, uh, memes or stuff about ADHD. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, that's how I found out. That's what I was doing in the past, you know. So it's interesting to be able to have there's areas that I think a lot of people don't really understand. So there's one that's big, that's emotional dysregulation. The others are going to be executive dysfunction. And like, I hurt profoundly through those things because when you have emotionally dysregulation, you're not able to necessarily comprehend things or see things as they are, or pick up on things, set boundaries, say no, and your emotions are kind of all over the place. It's like the form of ruminating, you know, having impure thoughts, you know, uh, worrying about things way too much. Then you have executive dysfunction. So basically what executive functioning is, is like being able to say no, being able to set boundaries, being able to make a decision, being able to account for the time that is allotted for something that it takes. It's like task orientation and having control over that. So I had... (laughs) terrible stuff with that like I was all over the place I would push things to the very last minute and try to finish you know that at the very end at the last moment as a chef with ADHD were you like spilling stuff and burning yourself and cutting yourself careless mistakes up the butt dude yeah it's wild to kind of think about I think one thing I definitely noticed in the past is a lot of the things that happened in my past were resonating with ADHD, you know, especially with say the careless mistakes in a kitchen, burning something, forgetting something was in the oven, you know, burning yourself or uh, not knowing something was there or not paying attention, you know, things of that nature. It kind of messes with you a little bit after you get diagnosed because you're like, wow, how many different scenarios in my life could I've had, you know? Yeah, things would be a little different. If I could have just stood up for myself or if I could have stopped doing that, like what would have happened? Man, don't ruminate on that too much. I know. That's I know. A- <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big one right there. That's a doozy. Uh, we could talk about that forever, but uh, let's keep going here. So what would you change about yourself? Mm, that's interesting. I don't know if I can rapid fire this one, but <laughs> I think one thing that I would improve on myself is how to authentically communicate my needs now. I think a lot of people can relate to that one, man. Yeah. When were you the happiest? When I'm out just doing the things that I love. I think, you know, if I'm cooking or I have something novel that I'm learning about, I love educating myself. Yeah. When you gave me a ride home from the friends giving the other day, that book of ridiculous recipes looked like a whole on vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. The novelty of that thing looked ridiculous. Uh, one more favorite part about Austin. 
I would have to say the community. Yeah, there's there's just so much you can get into here. And the thing is, like, if you network, if you make friends, they open up doors for you left and right. And the community here is phenomenal, my man. Before I ask my last question, I just want to acknowledge you for a moment and just say, like, I, uh, I really appreciate you showing up today authentically as your honest and true self and sharing some things that I've not talked about on the show, like ADHD and like the challenge of that and how that shows up into a world of being a chef and a cook. And like, you're definitely the first chef I've had on the show. We've talked about other food related things on the show, but I just want to acknowledge you for all the things that you're doing to help serve people, literally food. That's amazing. Yeah. Also for cutting the turkey at the Friendsgiving the other day. And thank you for that. (laughs) Cut three. Three turkeys. Yeah, Yeah. No kidding. Final question for you. So basically my question is, is like, what's the best piece of advice you could maybe give to your younger self? So like if you were to go back to the beginning stages of being a chef or deciding to start your own private chef practice or even anybody else there out there in that world of entrepreneurship or wanting to start their thing or being a chef or really any sort of entrepreneurial endeavor for that matter, what's maybe the best piece of advice you could give to that person in related to just getting started and focusing on the right things and making the right first step into the right direction? Like two really significant things I always think about is like to be kind to yourself and take the time that is allotted for you to maybe practice and get better at what you're trying to do. Totally resonate with that, man. I always tell people to give yourself grace because like you're making the best decisions you can with the information that you have. There's a lot of people that are hurt and, you know, some things might hurt other people, other things might not. And so you have to kind of take into consideration, like maybe your actions aren't really as good as they might be. So you have to be aware too and think, oh, like here's something that I could help out with or do better or be a better person about. Perfect, man. What's your plug? Where can people find you? Yeah. So Instagram is Keto Chef Max. TikTok is Keto Chef Max as well. Pretty much it right now. Cool. Put that in the show notes. Appreciate you being on the show, brother. Hey friend, thanks for listening to the show. And if you have any feedback for me about the show or any other guests that you'd want to see in the show, definitely shoot me a message. I love engaging with my audience and figuring out how I can provide the best value possible to the people listening to this show. Before you go, I only have one ask of you and that would be to check on my three tips Tuesday newsletter. It's three marketing tips every Tuesday specifically for the health and fitness entrepreneur to help them attract new leads. If you press the link in the description, it'll take you directly to the archive of all my previous newsletters and you can decide for yourself if it's something for you. If you end up finding it helpful, you can just sign up for the newsletter and you'll get it in your inbox every Tuesday. Thanks again and keep hustling my friends.